You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. This is Steven Sater. It has been one of the rare honors of my life to work with Deaf West Theater on our revival of Spring Awakening. And I'm so thrilled and so grateful that our company has been recognized with a Tony Award nomination. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hey everybody, Ken Davenport here, back with another Producers Perspective podcast. I'm super excited about today's guest because, well, this guy's expertise is one of those areas that I really do not know much about. Uh, Today's guest is a two-time Tony-nominated lighting designer, including being nominated for this year for my production of Spring Awakening. Uh, He's also a brand new dad. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Ben Stanton. Welcome, Ben. Thank you so much, Ken. It's nice to be here. Uh, in addition to Spring Awakening, uh, this year Ben also lit Fully Committed, which is running now at the Lyceum. Uh, last year he lit Tony, the Tony Award-winning musical Fun Home. Uh, he's lit Seminar, Enemy, Enemy of the People, Off-Broadway's The Christians, The Whipping Man, The Lions, so many more. Ben Stanton, how did you find the light? <laughs> Where uh, did this all begin for you? I think I had a fairly odd introduction to the, I mean, I did theater in high school. I went to school in Massachusetts. Um, I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, went to Belmont High School, which had a great theater program and a great music program, but I was a musician. I was a drummer. I started as a drummer from the age of, I don't know, 10 years old or something like that. And I, in high school, I did, I I ran a follow spa. I was definitely drawn to lighting. I was drawn to technical theater, but it was more like I liked to climb around and get electrocuted and hang out with my friends. And, you know, I, my social life was in the theater. I, I think a lot of people go into this business for, for the for the social aspect of it as well as the kind of art of it. And that was sort of, I was already kind of being pulled towards the theater in high school, but I was like a serious musician. I was a jazz drummer. I was performing and gigging around Boston, and I was uh, applying to schools that had good music programs. And um, I ended up getting a scholarship to, fast forward, I ended up getting a scholarship to UMass Amherst to be a jazz, to study jazz. And, and uh, at the time famous jazz drummer Max Roach was on the faculty there. Uh, he wasn't there that often, but he was there like a couple times a semester, and Billy Taylor was on the faculty as a sort of adjunct, and Jeff Holmes ran the program. It was, it was like a kind of a serious program. And I went there, and I thought I was going to... I wasn't really sure how it would turn out, but I wanted to play music, and so I went to college to do that. And I got a, I got a kind of a free ride, and I thought, this is, this is it. And uh, I spent two and a half years studying music, and I just started to get, I, I, I wasn't finding a mentor, basically. There was no real, there's there no real jazz drum teacher there, so I was still studying, going back to Boston for lessons, and I just, I was in need of a mentor. I was, you know, 20 years old, and uh, I wasn't sure where I was going, and I was learning stuff, and I was getting better, but I wasn't, I had no clear vision of my future. And um, so I started thinking about going to Berkeley College of Music, and in, but I also sort of checked out the theater department 
because that was like my other sort of interest. And I met, uh, I met who would become my mentor. Uh, her name is Penny Remsen. She still teaches at UMass Amherst, undergrads and grads, but uh, her undergrad roster includes uh, a few people you might know, Jane Cox, Justin Townsend, Matt Richards, David Corrins. We were all in school, more or less together. Jane was a little bit older and went to Smith, but studied lighting at UMass. The rest of us were all in school at the exact same time. So it was actually kind of a remarkable time to be there as like a wannabe designer. And so, you know, long story short, I, I sort of got hooked in with Penny and with all these other really talented students and, uh, and kind of came out, like went in a drummer, came out a lighting designer. And, and, and the thing that I think is sort of, the reason I tell that sort of long-winded story is because what I thought was so, what I, what I was pleasantly surprised to find out was that the skill set is almost exactly the same in the sense that lighting is like jazz. Lighting is reactionary. You, as a drummer and a lighting designer, you're sort of in a position to respond to lots of other stimulus. There's lots of things that kind of come first and you, uh, you hear and you respond, or you, you know, in the case of music. And when I switched over to theater, I realized it was the exact same kind of muscles, just not literally muscles. It was my brain. So I would see a set, I would read a script, I would hear music, I would see a costume, and I would respond to it intuitively, like I had been doing since I was in, you know, the fourth grade. And I, and and because lighting is a lot of real time, like you're in the theater, you're sitting in that theater, and the sets up there, and the actors are on stage, and you're having to respond kind of very quickly. It it was a real natural transition from from becoming a from being in a, like playing in a small group jazz ensemble to sitting in a tech and kind of just fielding all of this stimulus and responding to it. Like that was never confusing to me. Like how do you respond to something? Because I've been doing it since I was a little kid. And 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 I just had to. And the, and the, and the freeing part was I didn't have to rely on my muscles. So so I. Whereas you could only play what you're what you could physically play here. I just had to have ideas. And it was like it was. I was like this is a joke. Like I can just you know, put 50 of those things over there. And, and eventually I'm not even the guy who has to do it. You know, someone else has to do it. And then I, you know, I just say, turn those on and they turn on. And, you know, I used to, I used to have to practice and practice and practice. And, and, um, it was, it was exciting. And I, and I really liked, there's an intellectual component to theater that I liked a lot and it just really felt like the right fit. So I came out of UMass. I, I interned at the Williamstown Theater Festival. They hired me back the following summer and I basically met most of the people I still work with, all these young directors, Sam Gold was there, Trip Coleman was there, uh, Carolyn Cantor was there, Andy Dorson, like tons of people that I still are um, either connected to or work with. Uh, Dan Goldstein was there. Uh, Will Frears was there. I mean, it was like a, and that, you know, and I was like 23, we were all like 23 and we were just hanging out and, you know, assisting all of the fancy people. And, and then, um, uh, and, and I also met some lighting designers that I assisted uh, shortly thereafter. And I, I formed some relationships with Kevin Adams and Ken Posner and people that I assisted. And so, and I just came here and worked and worked and worked. And, and uh, eventually, I feel like I'm, I mean, I'm 41 years old. I've, you look about 23 I, years I old. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, well, that's because I'm inside all the time. Right. I never get any You don't sun. see light. A lighting designer to, that actually doesn't see daylight. I, I go to the doctor and they're like, you have no vitamin D in your system. Literally zero. Like, you need to take supplements. No, I mean, I'm in tech all the time, right? So, uh, yeah, I, I, 
I weather well, I guess. But, uh, but I mean, I've been doing this a long time. I've been doing this a long time and I never, I didn't go to grad school. I never really had a substantial regional career. Like some, I think some, sometimes young designers come out of a grad program, have connections at certain regional theaters and spend their first, you know, eight to 10 years working kind of out of town. I hear that story a lot. Set designers, lighting designers, like, like they're at the alley, they're at the Huntington, they're at the Hartford stage there. And they have like relationships there so they can count on those jobs. And then some, at some point there's ideally a sort of a, a transition to more New York centric work. But for me, it was like just working on like lots of Adam Rapp plays at the Rattlestick Theater and um, lots of sort of off, I mean, proper off-Broadway, but small off-Broadway. I mean, it was years before I worked in the Ham Theater Club, years. One of the early, one of the early sort of champions of my work was the New York Theater Workshop. Linda Chapman and Jim Nicola at the New York Theater Workshop gave me a few breaks when I was pretty young, and that was really helpful. But, you know, I, I designed for five years before I had an agent. You know, I just, it, it took a long time. It took a long time. I just, I, I, I just sort of just finally feel like I've stopped paying my dues and I'm starting to, you know, enjoy some larger shows and some, and some, uh, you know, I mean, this whole Tony Award thing is crazy. Um, I mean, it's, you know, three years ago I was watching on TV and two years ago I was there, you know, or last year I was there rather, and, you know, it's just, that transition is still mind-boggling for me. What's your approach when you get a new show, a brand new piece, a, sort of a new player, a new musical, you, you get, someone hires you, and you're on board. What's the first thing you do to figure out how you're going to light it? Well, uh, I'll usually, I mean, I definitely, you know, obviously read the script uh, uh, several times and just try to kind of become conversant because usually the people you're about to meet with, let's say, uh, first meeting with the director, are really, have, have spent a lot of time with this material. And in order to contribute something, I feel like you have to kind of catch up a little bit. And oftentimes the set, by the time I'm hired, the set is already designed a lot of times. Uh, the set, you know, oftentimes the set designer and the director are, have been kind of working at it for a while. So, you need, you know, there's a bit of a, you know, I, I need to, it's, a, you have to kind of walk a line because you want to come in with some ideas and some thoughts, but you also don't want to, you know, come in with something that is, ends up being completely out of left field because chances are they're going to put a sketch in front of you or a monologue in front of you and say, so this is what we're doing. What do you think? You know, so like you, you kind of have to stay open energetically, but, but, but what's great about that, like I said before, is I'm, I'm a, I'm a kind of a, a reactionary artist. I don't really call myself an artist or think of myself as an artist, but I, I, I work in a sort of a reactionary art form. You know, I'm a craftsman of, of this thing where you're being dealt a lot of cards and then you have to kind of figure out what the best thing to do is. So, you know, having someone put a sketch in front of me and talk to me a little bit about the world of the play, you know, and I just start processing and processing. Um, I, uh, if it's a period piece or a, a piece sort of set in a, in a sort of unique place, I'll do some research. If there are, you know, words in the title or in the script that I don't understand, I will look them up. I mean, I just try not to be a dummy. You know, like I try to, I try to do my homework so that I, I have something to contribute early on, um, knowing that at the same time, you know, I'm going to sort of be dealt a set of cards that, that, and I, that I have to stay open to. Um, Would you prefer coming on much earlier or do you think it's 
the people are hired in the right progression? I don't. I. It's always great to be brought in early. It's always fun to be sort of a fly on the wall in those early meetings. Um, we all get busy, and I, I don't think that I'm being excluded. I don't. I don't consider that I'm being like excluded from the process. I actually think directors are sort of sensitive to our time. And like want to kind of work out some fairly mundane details before they start talking to me, and I sort of appreciate that. I, I appreciate, uh, you know, there might be a discussion about molding that I might not really care that much about, uh, you know. So, so I don't necessarily like. I'm not like upset when a lot of work has been done ahead of time, and the people I work with are really smart. So, like, it's rare that there's a bunch of decisions that have been made that I completely don't understand or you know and sometimes if I'm a little confused by something it's it's me needing to catch up to you know and kind of get with the program so I do think it is sort of the right order um having said that you know I work on a lot of new plays and if I'm invited I love to go I love to sit in the room I love to talk about the play but I do stop short of like getting really I feel like I do want to let the set designer have their process and I don't want to be you know I'd rather I'm I'm comfortable talking about the play and the world of the play kind of in an abstract way emotionally and listening a lot but I don't I don't necessarily want to come in with like a heavy-handed idea like before the set's even been designed in part because I've had some experiences where I've you know suggested something like oh, what if that wall was see-through? And like, and, and for whatever reason, it ends up being like just an awful idea. Usually, you know, the execution or something about, you know, the way it was installed or there's just like some, you know, occasionally it's gone wrong. And then you're the guy that had that. And it's very, you know, and then all of a sudden the set designer's like, well, that was Ben's idea, clearly. So, uh, so, so I, I don't know. I try to let people do their jobs and not step on their toes. Well, now that I think about it, actually, set coming first and then lighting coming next, works it's the opposite way as we get towards the end of it because the set gets put in and the lighting is usually the last element to be finished right for sure and you know and the set like this is what i mean about the process i mean i my process is very public you know i have a prep process where i make a bunch of decisions on paper but they're all educated guesses you know i mean some of them are pretty right on but like they're all there, it's like picking your paints, you know, before you paint the picture, right? You're picking your colors, you're picking your brushes. You do all that thinking these are probably the right things that I'll need to, to do what I'm going to do. But you might discover halfway through that you need something different. Um, whereas the set designer, I mean, by the time I sit down in the theater to write light cues, they've had an entire process. And it's sort of the finished product. They might have some paint notes, but if, you know, unless unless something has gone terribly wrong, what we're all looking at is the is the culmination of their process. And then they kind of go into like almost a lot of the set designers I know kind of drop into like an assistant director role where they start, you know, helping the director, you know, kind of consulting on blocking and ideas for where to stage a scene and like how to do it, you know, how to manipulate a transition. But I'm just starting my process really and I'm doing it all in public. And so because I, you know, have my own, you know, sort of like hang-ups about how people interact with me when I'm kind of in the thick of it, like in the weeds, like trying to just get, you know, 
a musical number done or trying to get, you know, a bunch of stuff to work that doesn't work or whatever it is, you know, I'm sensitive to how people kind of approach me in those moments. I try to be sensitive early on in the process to the set designer uh, because they're potentially in the weeds. They, you know, they maybe are going down a road that they need to go down before they change direction or whatever. And it's not going to help for me to just sort of like, like, are you sure you want to do that? You know, you sure red is the color, you know, like whatever. I, 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 I trust, I mean, I'm just so lucky to work with so many talented people and I trust their process and hope that they trust mine, you know, when they're coming up to me and they're like, are you sure green is the right color? It's like, quiet. <laughs> you know, one of those rare, you're in one of those rare professions where there's a real blend of artistry and also technical expertise. Yes. Is it 50-50? Is it 80-20? What is the blend art to technical knowledge? That's a good question. I haven't, I haven't thought about That's a good question. Um, art to technical knowledge. I mean, I, I think there's a third component, which is sort of organization. Like, I think, I think there are people that you can rely on when you don't know an answer to a technical question, there are electricians, you know, my, my sort of responsibilities technically really kind of stop at the water's edge. Like I'm not the one plugging all the stuff in. I'm not the one, you know, if I don't know what kind of follow spot to put in the Lyceum theater, I can ask the electrician because I've done the last 20 shows there. So they could be like, well, you know, Hal used this and Billington used this. And I thought this was the, you know, ask your electrician. Like they're really smart people who know stuff. So I don't have to know that much. You need to know enough technically to, you know, you need to know how to use the lights. You need to know what they do, but you can ask for a lot of advice. You know, you can describe an idea to your assistant, your associate, an electrician. You can bounce ideas off people and people will have, um, lots of good ideas uh so so i don't feel like a huge part of my process is technical but i've also been doing this for 18 years and i kind of like know a lot of stuff and um and then there's the artistic which is your taste you know why you pick one color when someone else picks a different color you know why you like a certain intensity on someone's face and someone else, you know, you see someone else's work and you say, oh, everyone was so bright, you know, and they see your work and they say, everyone was so dark, you know, or whatever it is. You know, we all have our own tastes and that's the art part of it, you know, is is, is just sort of your influences, you know, what you like, how you, how you think about making stage pictures, how you think about creating and affecting the audience, uh, creating, you know, atmosphere and, and affecting the audience and telling the story. Um but there's a third part of it that I think really comes into play, especially the, on the bigger shows, which is just sort of infrastructure, like your staff, like how you get through a tech, how you organize your work, how you, like I do a lot of things that speed tech up because I actually believe tech should be as, I try to get through the first pass of the play or musical as kind of as fast as I can. Not to say that there aren't times when it's worth stopping and talking about stuff, but I, I sort of, I feel self-conscious about monopolizing time and tech, and I want to get, and I also think that your first ideas are rarely your best ideas. I think there's just a certain amount of kind of slightly um, tedious cue building and, 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 and cueing that has to happen and communicating just to get through the show once, and then you can all sit back and watch it. And then you can start to really learn what 
what your show is, what you've got, you know, what choices worked, what didn't. You know, that stuff you do on the first day is probably going to be redone by the time an audience sees it. So, like, why belabor that? So I actually do a ton of different things, little things that I've learned over the years or developed myself that just speed it up. Like, I give the stage manager all of the cues that I can possibly think of before tech starts, you know, so that they actually have them in their book and they're calling them even if they aren't there yet. I put the cues in the board, in the in the computer, uh, they, they're empty. They don't change the lights, but they're there. So when the stage manager says go, a cue happens. So I'm already editing. I'm already editing instead of writing. I don't have to say like, well, what cue number should that be? I've decided that a week ago. So I'm all, you know, the, the sort of train is already leaving the station. And I'm just like editing and editing and jumping ahead and editing and going back or taking a note. And I'm just trying to constantly keep things moving. And that's not art and it's not technical. It's just like, for me, it's, it's a part of, you know, like I say, I, I believe I believe shows are better the faster you tech them because you have more time to watch them. You know, if you have three weeks to tech a big musical and you take three weeks, and they do take time. You know, if I don't know, like I don't do every show in two days or something, but but like, but I do plays in two days usually. But like I I you know I just believe in getting through the first pass because I think it makes the show better. I think Fun Home was really good because. We, I, I felt like, I felt like, you know, we, we got through it with a day or two left of tech to spare. We were able to run it a few times for ourselves. Then we were able to bring in an audience. And I just came in every morning and just like chiseled away at the problems in that show, lighting problems in that show until there were none, you know, or until there were very few or until I, you know, kind of figured out solutions. And, and that was tricky because you're, you know, in the, in the round, fun home is in the round. So I had to sit in a lot of different seats to see the show and edit the show. But the sooner I can get to the edit, editing process, the better I think my work is. So that's actually, it's not sexy, but it's it's uh, it's something I really believe in. It's like part of my job. Also, you get to give the actors back their show quickly. Because, one, you know, actors are in rehearsal and they have a vibe and they have a connection and they have a connection to the piece and they're running the piece. And then you throw them up on stage and you tell them to hold every five minutes while you light around them. And they just like, I can't imagine how frustrating that must be um and then and then there's this sometimes it takes time for the actors to get their show back get their rhythm back get their relationships back get their head back into their characters because they've just been standing around the stage for a week or something and so the sooner they can do that the better the show is i just think that you know that uh, yeah i just it's like minutes it's like i don't know it's like a football analogy in there somewhere it's like inches you know you just you just push and push and push and push and then at some point you have to stop and whatever you have at that point when you have to stop working on the show is what the show is. So I try to be a speed demon when I can. And, and that's, yeah, I don't know what that, I guess it's just uh, it's more like methodology or craftsmanship or something. Now, now everyone out there listening knows why Ben is a very favorite lighting designer for producers <laughs> like me, because we love a quick, quick tech. Yeah. This is a bit of a loaded question, considering your wife is a celebrated projection designer herself. She yeah. obviously did the projections for spring. Uh, how do you feel about projections? This is something that you've seen, actually, over the, your entire career. Right. When you started, they weren't what they are that's, today. That's right. So how have you, what do you think about this evolution of more projections? I think it's, I think it, uh, I think it's you know, there, there's a lot of, I, I think it's good. <laughs> we won't let Lucy hear this. Yeah, right. You... <laughs> no, I think it's, I mean, I, I, I think projections can really help storytelling a show. And I think, 
I think the projections in Spring Awakening were were great uh, and helpful. Uh, not only, be, I mean, obviously the sort of obvious function that the projections served in Spring Awakening was as super titling for deaf performers, uh, uh, well, really for deaf audience, so that they could understand uh, some of the stuff that was being said. I mean, it was basically a redundancy because a lot of what was being signed was being spoken, but there was also stuff that occasionally wasn't being spoken, and 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 a lot of times that would end up in super titles, and so that was obviously necessary. And and but the way that Lucy did it, she did it, you know, with a sort of fairly sophisticated like concept of you know the sort of chalk drawings on a chalkboard, and a lot of the super titles first existed on a chalkboard, and then she took the chalk motif and she created entire worlds out of sort of this chalk texture uh and and was it where you know i mean we did the show in a where you know the set was basically just like a sort of a warehouse but we had scenes that were in gardens and lucy was able to create that i would have not been able to create that successfully i would have tried and failed probably to create and it wasn't that she like you know it wasn't a hyper-realistic garden but it was but it but it gave enough information so i guess my feeling about projections is that like when used well they're amazing but they're not always used well um i don't i'm i don't i can't even think of a lot of examples of like bad projections but but just in general i think it's scary project i I would be terrified as a projection designer because like the possibilities are limitless and as soon as you put a projector up that shoots at the thing you know, directors can ask you for all sorts of things. And, uh, and, and, you know, I think video designers have to like be really clear about their sort of scope, what they're going to do and how they're going to convey or else we're just replacing scenery with project, you know, scenery with projected backgrounds or, or, uh, you know, sort of doing stuff that you would see in movies or hyper-realistic backgrounds for, for plays. And I just don't think that's the most interesting way to tell stories. So really it's just, it's, I think they're awesome, but it's up to the individual video designer to, you know, show restraint and, and kind of have a point of view that's helpful. And, um, and I, I, and I think each, and I also think like each design element has had its own evolution. Like, you know, uh, sound lighting and then sound and now video are all in sort of different stages of kind of evolution and lighting has gotten to a point where there's you know there's i feel like there's a kind of a consensus about i don't know i feel like there's sort of a consensus about like what good lighting is or or at least like within a sort of a certain sphere uh of at least some of the sort of there's enough like education programs yale and 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 places like that and that that kind of that kind of uh espouse a certain sort of ethos of like responsibility of a lighting designer like like the things you need to do like telling the story you know like we're all taught like you know you need to be helping the storytelling not hurting it you need to be helping us know where to look not distracting us you know like like and then there's all sorts of you know sort of different opinions about use of color and there's sort of like this it's like there's a, a bit of a, a, a sort of a 20 year old 30 year old conversation that's been going on about how we do what we do video i feel like is just very very new there are lighting designers who've become video designers who don't make content at all but they know a lot about projectors and they can manipulate content there's people like lucy who didn't study video at all she studied literature 
and she's a, she draws, she sketches and draws, and she creates all of her own content. I mean, it takes her months to sit at home and like digitally create all of this animation and beautiful, you know, sketches and all this stuff. And she used to do it for other video designers, some of whom, you know, uh, didn't necessarily know how to do that themselves. But, you know, so like there are different even, you know, someone like Lucy makes her own stuff. There are other video designers that essentially curate work like, like, you know, Jeff Koons does, you know, like, like, like modern artists maybe do. Uh, maybe some scenic designers do too. You know, they don't build the model, they don't do the sketch, but they curate all the stuff and critique it and, you know, kind of manage it. And so I, I just think it's a very new art form. I think it can add tremendous depth and beauty to a piece when it's done well. You mentioned the evolution of all of these design elements. What do you think the next thing is for lighting? Where do you think uh, we're headed? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I wonder if lighting and video designers. I wonder if. I wonder if a, you know. I mean, I, I mean. Well, there's a lot of talk right now about color because LED technology is taking over the lighting industry and and the world with regard to light. You know, I think eventually, sadly, we won't have incandescent light bulbs anymore. Um, we won't have fluorescent light bulbs anymore. Everything will be LED and they'll last for, you know, 50 years. And um, and in the entertainment industry, I think we were all pretty afraid of that and, uh, early on because, you know, uh, the kind of color options that you could get in LED technology were limited. And we didn't want to be, you know, the you know, when they started passing laws in some states about, like, having to use energy-efficient stuff, I certainly panicked a little because I thought, well, the, you know, the last thing that live theater is is energy-efficient, but, you know, we're creating this stuff, and, you know, these are our tools, and please don't take away our tools. And they didn't, and they haven't, but the technology is getting better. And I, and, and it's starting to add versatility to our work. I used you know, over a hundred LED Lecos on Fun Home. Uh, and I did that because it was a musical uh, that needed different colors, basically. Uh, and the only other way to have one light produce lots of different colors was to put uh, what's called a color scroller in front of it. And this is just a big box that you put on front of the light that has different colors in it, and it literally scrolls those colors. But they make a lot of noise. They have a fan in them that hums, and they... When you change colors, you can hear the kind of the me the the media kind of move in front of the light. And I needed like 130 of these. And I Circle and Square is such an intimate little theater that I really didn't want to put 130 color scrollers uh, in that theater. So I was literally, I mean, so I so I was able to get a rental shop to instead of renting us scrollers, rent us these new LED. Uh, lights that that are you know they have like seven or eight different leds in them and they mix all of these beautiful subtle colors and they're silent and it was i mean i i thought if i'm lucky i'll just get away with like these will be quiet i'll get a couple colors out of them that i can really use like like that's you know uh i'm just hoping for that you know just a few variations in color so that i can light this musical but they actually were amazing i mean they, they did these gorgeous dark colors and and they really sort of up the ante for what I was able to do on that show. So I feel like that's, I mean, I feel like video, I feel like even though video and lighting are very separate right now, they're both light. 
So I feel like it's about like color and LED and technology. And it's about, you know, eventually are they just going to invent something, you know, a light that it, that it does both video and light and, you know, and, and there's just no separation. Like as a lighting design, I'll probably age out before this really happens, but I bet eventually you're just going to have to know how to do both. I mean, it's already true in rock and roll. I do live. I also like concerts in rock and roll and, uh, or more, more accurately indie rock. Uh, but I, you know, I've been on tour and I've, I've gone out and, you know, eight of the 10 guys out on the road are doing lighting and video. It's already because kind of anyone can do, I mean, you need to learn a few things, but kind of anyone can do video. Meaning like if you can figure out the technology of it, you can very easily get content to come out of a machine onto a wall. Like that's actually not that hard. Which is why this is probably a more articulate way of saying what I was saying before, but like that's why it, it really takes taste and restraint to be a good video designer. Because like I could do it, I just wouldn't do a good job. And there are guys, you know, there are guys who do it and don't do a good job, but they know what the projectors do, they know how to make stuff come out of them, they know how to manipulate that stuff. And kind of, you know, a lot of people can do that. And and in, in corporate lighting, corporate events, um, and, and, and rock and roll and all of these different, I mean, every concert has video in it now, you know? And, and you know, I'm sort of not as marketable in the concert world as I could be if I, you know, spit the bullet and learned how to do that. I mean, my dream is that they'll just hire me and my wife together and I will never have to learn. <laughs> but uh, but you, you, you get what my point. I, I, I think that's, I mean, I think those are the kind of the questions. Like what's going to become the new industry standard for sort of color mixing and LED technology. And then like what, you know, how are lighting and video gonna kind of coexist or are they gonna become like the same department eventually? You and your wife and your new baby will have to be a sound designer so you get the whole phantom package. That sounds great. Or sets. We still need sets, Ken. For the moment. For the moment, I know, God. So I started off this podcast by saying this was an area that I don't, as a producer, know a lot about. Mm -hmm. And certainly I try to learn on every show I did. I remember learning a lot from you on Spring Awakening. And frankly, I've been doing this for a while. If you could get all the producers in the room and give them a quick five-minute instruction on lighting, what would you want? What's the one thing you'd want all Broadway producers to know about lighting or to understand what you do? Uh, I should have anticipated that. <clears throat> what would I want them to know about what I do? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I, I feel like most producers are really smart. I mean, I think I on every show, I have to articulate. I mean, the way I do it is I always design what I believe the show demands. I, I believe in working backwards from the ideal. And I do that because, for two reasons. I do that because, you know, like I said, a lot of times the set has sort of already been figured out, or a lot of the details have. The play is the play. And I feel like it's my job to say, you know, this is what this play and this set demand. Like, the, based on what the director is telling me, what the play is telling me, and what the set is telling me, here is what... I think this needs. And a lot of times that's well over what the producers have budgeted for or the general managers or whoever have budgeted for. 
um, and and on and, and then I'm happy to work backwards from there. You know, like okay, like we don't have that, and and you know, just like any sort of product you're selling, you know, you sort of try to break it into easily digestible, understandable parts. Like, well, this is what these are doing. This is what that costs. Do you know? As a group, can we decide we don't need that? Great, then that's gone, and and then we get to you know, but I try to just communicate um, really clearly about what um, what things do, what their value is, and then let sort of the group decide whether those things are necessary or not. But I start from that place of like, you know, if I have all of this, I can guarantee you a good product, and if we can't afford all of this, which is you know, understandable and often the case, then we should all discuss what of this we don't, we can do without. Um, so that, that's, I generally have good results with that. You know, I can articulate what, what I'm trying to do and people can decide if that's a good, what's something they want or not. What's harder to articulate, and maybe my answer would be, is, is about sort of the support system. Um, and because it's harder to quantify what that is. You know, why do you need two assistants instead of one? Why do you need an assistant sitting in the theater during load-in? You know, that's an extra two weeks. Like, why do we have to pay? You know, and, and I can understand why those questions come up. Um, but as I sort of touched on earlier, you know, there's a lot of kind of organization and infrastructure that I'm building that also guarantees a better product. It's just harder to put dollar signs next to in a way that people can always understand. But, you know, there are reasons. And, and um, so, I mean, if I, so, you know, uh, you know, if I'm doing, you know, and obviously the what I need for support is different if I'm doing a play versus doing a big musical because there's just so many more moving parts and pieces. But even then, usually I can articulate um, why I need what I need. Um, but but that's, that's just a, a harder, it's a harder sell sometimes. Um, so, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think it, I don't think it's worth getting into the minutiae of it, but, you know, but like, but there are so many things to sort of do in a timely fashion when you're making a musical that you really kind of do need two people sitting at the table with you in order to manage all that stuff. And there's so many sort of like questions that come up during load-in that you, I think it's, I think it's financial. It, I think ultimately then you save money by having someone there to like, to head off minor disasters as they're happening as opposed to sort of discovering them on the first day of tech and then having to work backwards um and you know um so i I just think it's about i just think it's about the support you know um how we how we you know yeah yeah what we need to 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 make to make our you know to make our work efficiently and effectively and with lighting, it's just so tough. People don't always understand it. And, you know, if you're need, if you a costume designer, you need someone to shop. Like, people understand what shopping is. And, they, you know, they understand, like, that's a line item they need to address. But it's harder to, it's often harder to articulate for lights. Okay, my last question, which is my genie question. Oh, gosh. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and says, Ben, you've done such a terrific job. I want to congratulate you on your Tony nominations for Fun Home and for this year's Spring Awakening. And I want to congratulate you by granting you one wish. What's the one thing that drives you so crazy about Broadway 
that would get you angry, keep you up at night, have you banging your fist on the table, screaming at the heavens. The one thing that frustrates you so much that you would ask this genie to wish away. It's about Broadway. About Broadway. Or working in the theater in working general. In the theater. <laughs> I have two. I have two, and they're both so petty. And Tim Rice said sippy cup, so nothing will be that. <laughs> I, you know, there's all of this, there, uh, it's not really wishing away, it's sort of wishing in something, but, but I, I, God, I'm going to sound like such a miser. This is like, when you go on tour with a, with, with a, a band, or when you're making a movie, or when you're doing anything that requires you to be anywhere for more than like eight hours in a day. People put money in your pockets every day for food, and they feed you. <laughs> they do it. You know, it's like you get your per diem, and you get, and there's like a, a, a tent sitting there with like hot food in it, or like you know whatever. I mean, I've eaten the weirdest breakfasts in the world in like basements of venues in Scotland, like like, but it's there, like it's just understood. But there's this sort of like there's this sort of like fallacy that like we're because we because we're in New York that we're home that we could that we can go home for dinner and come back or we could pack our lunch and bring like we like that there's no there's this not this I think you know I I hemorrhage money working in Midtown Manhattan and you know (laughs) and I just think I just want to be fed I just want to be fed when I work on and off Broadway because I'm there till midnight and I live in Brooklyn. I don't live in Manhattan. And like I'm, you know, I just like per diem. I don't even want per diem. Forget per diem. I just want to be fed by loving people who appreciate us. I just think it's like I tell I tell you know there's all this off Broadway negotiation going on right now. Uh, there's a big push for uh, the union, our union, the designers union is really trying to kind of create some sort of collective understanding or collective bargaining for off-Broadway shows because it's a it's a wide range and it's generally fairly well you know fairly underpaid and and I support their efforts and I'm participating in in whatever way I can but but I just keep kind of joking like I was like I don't want more money I just want food just give me two meals I, I don't think that's too much to ask Ben Stanton will work for food work everybody for food. you've heard it here <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the great work you did. You've done all over, but especially for, for me and for everyone on Spring Awakening. It was truly stunning. Uh, thanks for that. Thanks to all of you for listening. And make sure to subscribe and tune in next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org, because only together we rise.